as we look at God's word together. Father, we pray now as we just look at your word. Father, we pray that you would just, Lord, we just ask you to be with us. Lord, as Daphne said, it isn't about um, what we do in our own strength. And so often, Lord, church can feel like that. It can feel like we're trying to be in a better mood or trying to feel close to you, Lord, just by putting an act on or wearing a mask. Father, God, we put it all aside now. We just put it all aside, Father. And we, some of us may, this morning may just feel very far from you. Some may be hanging on for their holidays. Others, Lord, may just be feeling just tired generally. So, Father God, we put it all down. And we just want to sit in your presence, Father God. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, he would just convict us of our sin, of course, but he would encourage us and fill us with your power, Lord, and point us to you, your face. Father God, the devil longs and works tirelessly to bring our gaze down from the throne of the King of Kings, but to the mud and mess of our world. Lord, and the, the busyness of our lives and say, well, you know, get back to God in September. But Father God, you're here this morning. You're with us. And you, you desire that we would lift our eyes to you where our help comes from. So Lord, we just give you this time, whatever form it takes, and we pray your kingdom will just be with us. Lord, your spirit will be with us. Your presence will be with us. And we'll be together with you. Lord, as Jesus promised in John 17. And we just pray this in his name. Amen. I have a, a recurring dream. Um, that sounds like the beginning of a, a passionate speech, isn't it? It's the other, I have a dream speech. I have a recurring dream. About the middle of every December, in fact, I have a recurring dream. Very occasionally I have a similar dream uh, just before Easter. But it happens like clockwork on about the 10th of December every single year. It has done um, since my second year of being here. Um, I don't know why the second year. Not special about the first year, but obviously I'm getting more anxious the longer I'm here, perhaps. And uh, in my dream, I arrive at church just before our carol service. Carols by candlelight is due to start. And I walk in and I stand about here. And, and I look over and the church is packed with people. And I don't mean a few people. I mean absolutely heaving up there as well. Full. I mean, it is quite full for our carol service. But fuller, shall we say. And I sit there and I think, ooh, better be a good service. And I notice that the time is 6.25 in my dream. And then it dawns on me that I've done absolutely nothing. There's no songs. So the music group is just standing there. There's no talk. There's no readings. There's no sketches or videos. There's not even decorations. Nothing. All the lights are on, and it's just awful. Panic sets in, and I wake up a bit like this. <gasps> but then I realize that it's only a dream, and I've got at least two weeks to come up with it. I spend months getting ready for the carol service, for the record. Um, but I know I've got a good couple of weeks to finish everything off. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our look at the kingdom of God. We've been looking at God's kingdom. I guess we started with this thought about God's kingdom the Sunday after the EU referendum. Uh, and we wanted to make that point that we belong to a different kingdom, one that is unshakable, one that is good, that is perfect, that is better than any other kingdom on earth. And that as Christians, we belong to God's kingdom and our role on earth isn't just to uh, exist here or there. It's actually exist, exist in God's kingdom on earth and bring some of God's kingdom to where we work, our families, our streets, our neighbors, to actually bring God's kingdom to earth. And regardless of where politics goes, our mission remains exactly the same, to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And so we kind of started off from there, really. And last week we looked at God's kingdom a bit more generally. uh, And we just realized that God's kingdom isn't a place. It's not the church. 
um, praise the Lord, because the church is often a bit of a poor expression of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is individual Christians under the rule of God, a kingship of Jesus Christ. So wherever you go, you take God's kingdom with you. You take the kingly rule of God into school, uni, family, wherever you go. And that should change how we think about even the most mundane activity. You're washing up after church this morning. What an amazing opportunity to be a brick in God's kingdom in that place. You're picking up litter from outside your front door later on that someone's dropped. You do it in the name of the living God. I told you the story about my friend picking up poo, didn't I? I remember that. Do everything for the kingdom of God. We take God's kingship wherever we go. And so this morning I want to tell you about a dream that a man had, not about a carol service in a church, but a, 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 a sorry. Um, a dream that a man named Nebuchadnezzar had in the Old Testament, a dream that troubled him immensely, but a dream that, whilst it troubled him, actually should excite us and fire us up and encourage us about God's coming kingdom, because it's on its way, it's arriving, it's getting bigger all around us. Before we get to that, um, we will be looking at the book of Daniel, if you've got the Bible open, it's kind of two-thirds along in the Old Testament. If you hit Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you're almost there. Just keep going until you get to Daniel. It's only about eight or nine chapters, I think, um, long. And so just if you've got that open, that would be great. But a bit of context for you. The book of Daniel is an Old Testament book. It's part of the four major prophets, as they're known. It documents a period of Israel's history when they really weren't doing very well. Uh, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, had been kind of obliterated. And there was just a southern part, known as Judea, or Judah, sorry, Judah. And, uh, and they were under siege by the world power, the world superpower at that time, the Babylonians, who were headed by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And what the Babylonians would do is they would come up to a city they wanted, or a large area, and they would just lay siege to it. And they would sit there for months and months and months. And they would basically wait until people surrendered. But as they had laid siege to somewhere like Jerusalem, what they would also do is they would kind of go in occasionally, they would grab some of the brightest and the best young men, and they would take them back to Babylonia, the capital, and they would try and make them uh, carbon copies so they could serve the Babylonian empire. And so um, that's where we are. That's where the story is. Uh, They're about to all go off in exile into the Babylonian empire for 70 years. Uh, And in 70 years' time, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra will bring them back and rebuild the temple and the city, and it will be an amazing return. The book of Daniel, as I've just said, tells a story particularly of four young men, a guy called Daniel uh, and then his three friends who were given the names Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, You may know them from the fiery furnace um, and things like that. They were considered a part of this group of young men from Jerusalem, from, from Judah, who were the brightest and the best. They were dragged from their homes, they were taken to Babylon. And they were to be trained in the culture and the ways of the Babylonian Empire. And you might ask, well, how did they get all these young men to go against their culture and their people and serve the Babylonian interests? Easy. Stuff. Stuff is always the way to control people. You can't control people half as well um, by hurting them as you can by giving them everything they want and threatening to take it away if they don't toe the line. Food and privilege and education were the tools by which the Babylonians convinced people to turn against their own nation. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, 
says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered the chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Obviously, if I'd been there, I'd have been taken off with the first group. Um, Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tim. Me and you would go. No one else. (laughs) You're the only one that said yes. So they're taken off and they're given nice food, they're educated, and they're encouraged to turn away from their own people and serve the Babylonians. It really hits me as a really small point to think about this morning. I wonder, is not the biggest danger to us in the 21st century our privilege? Is it not our privilege? We worry about poverty, and rightly so. We worry about oppression, and rightly so. But do we ever worry about our privilege? Do we ever sit back and think, have I got too much stuff? Am I all that God calls me to be, and is my stuff getting in the way? Do we get passionate about social injustice and problems only when it might affect our pension pot, or our houses, or our bank balance? not suggesting any of you feel that way. But I do wonder if privilege isn't considered a danger as much as it should. So Daniel and his three friends, they go off amongst this group to serve in Babylon. As the others seemed to gladly fit in, Daniel and his three friends didn't. Uh, They stayed separate. They served their God in Babylon. And uh, they were treated differently. They were quickly recognized, chapter 1, verse 17. Particularly Daniel was having a gift um, of insight. So to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And into that context, Nebuchadnezzar has his strange dream, which I'd like to read to you. It's in chapter 2, verse 31 to 35. As he lays in bed one night, he has a very strange dream, and he wakes up terrified. What on earth does this strange dream mean? And what is this dream? What does he dream about? Well, fortunately, Daniel tells us. He says, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly, sorry, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Imagine having that dream and waking up thinking, what on earth does that mean? Well, Daniel, um, well, Nebuchadnezzar is so concerned by this dream, so bothered by this vision, that he gets all of his Babylonian um, sort of 
vision experts, um, these sort of wise men, and he says to them, tell me what my vision was, and then tell me what it means. They say, uh, we can't tell you what it was. You tell us what it was, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he says, no, 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 no. If you really know your stuff, tell me the dream and tell me what it meant, or I'm going to kill you. Because he was a, a good dictator. He did everything that you'd expect from a dictator in the Old Testament. Uh, he was completely crazy, and he threatened to kill people routinely who didn't do what he wanted. Obviously, they couldn't. They didn't even know where to start with this dream. They couldn't imagine what he was dreaming about. And just when you think he's going to kill them all, up steps Daniel, full of faith, full of passion, full of boldness and bravery in God. And he says, I'll tell you what the dream was, and I'll tell you what it means. In fact, I won't. God will, because God has told me what these things are. And this is Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verse 36 to 45 of the same chapter, chapter 2. Daniel says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you domain and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom. Uh, One of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, one strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron and bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what would take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. It's a vision with a very clear message that after the Babylonian Empire falls, there are going to be three other big empires, each impressive in their own way, but each one temporary, each one to be replaced by another kingdom. And there will finally be a fourth kingdom, a fourth kingdom that will be pretty large, pretty powerful, but not united. And that kingdom will be smashed to pieces by God's coming kingdom. What are these three kingdoms after the Babylonian one? Well, we needn't get too worried. We haven't got time for that this morning. Uh, But there are basically a few suggestions. The sort of Mede-Persian empire that came shortly after Uh, One version of the Greek Empire, or the one that came after Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire. Just a few suggestions of what people suggested could be uh, these three kingdoms um, after the Babylonian one. And uh, and whether this vision is a a vision of three successive kingdoms until the birth of Jesus, or three visions that go right across history, three empires across history until the return of Jesus, um, it doesn't really matter in a way, because the message of this vision is about the future, that the kingdoms of men will come to an end. 
regardless of how big and how powerful and how nasty they become. And God's kingdom will reign forever and ever because it is a kingdom of power. And I've been thinking about that word power this week and how really as Christians we don't use it half as much as we should. We love to talk about the grace of God and the humility of God and the peace and the gentleness of our king and rightly so. But our God is more than that, isn't he? Isn't he a powerful God? Isn't he a God that can do anything he wants? Can you resist the will of God? No. God does what he pleases. God is God. He is a powerful, mighty, majestic king of all kings. He had no birth. He has no death. He has never not been. He never will not be. He is always there. The same yesterday, today, and forever. His kingdom is not a temporary kingdom, like the Babylonians or the Romans or the British or whoever had a kingdom. But it is an eternal kingdom of power. And we don't talk about the word power. And I wonder if it's because of two reasons. Maybe we don't like to use the P word very often for fear that we might be provocative or it might come across badly. People abuse power, don't they? So let's not talk about the power of God. But we know from the birth of Jesus that that power came wrapped in gentleness. It came wrapped in beauty. God's power is not one of oppression and pain, but one of goodness and grace. Yet power, nevertheless, it is. I wonder if we don't talk about the power of God enough because we secretly wonder whether or not God has any and that he's going to be powerful in our lives. But in his dream... He saw God's kingdom smash to nothing, the kingdoms of men. And this image of God's kingdom smashing ungodly power is something that went right across the Bible. And when we look at the uh, ministry of Jesus, we see him constantly smashing to pieces the powers of darkness and oppression. We see a meek, mild saviour, but we see a powerful one as well. One who is gentle, one who showed um, his fragileness, if you like, at times, but one who was powerful over what was evil. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, we're not going back to Daniel anymore. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and 28, we read about the power of Jesus, this coming kingdom of God. The kingdom came with Jesus' birth. It arrived when he was born. It's been getting bigger and bigger ever since these last 2,000 years. It will be with us fully when he returns. Uh, Go home and read Revelation 19 and see about the power of Jesus' return. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and 28, we see the power of God over evil. It says, They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. And then verse 28, Jesus says this, But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Has the kingdom of God arrived on earth? Is it here? Is it? You're the bricks in it. (laughs) So it is. 100%. The kingdom of God is here. And so if evil gets driven out in the name of Jesus, then the kingdom of God has arrived. So many people were brought to Jesus and just with a command, that evil left them. Evil demons that had controlled people for many years were just told to go. They trembled at the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Often people say to me, well, why don't we see that sort of thing in our lives? Why don't we see demons fleeing and miracles? Why don't we? Well, I wonder if we're just a bit too half-hearted at times. That perhaps sometimes we're a bit not, not as bold in our belief as we should be. 
Remember, just faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. But sometimes we're we're a bit worried about showing even that much for fear that we'll look bad or for fear that God won't turn up. But his kingdom is one of power through faith in Jesus Christ. Give me the faith of a child that we spoke about last week. I'm bored of adulthood, actually. I'm done with it. With our cynical ways of making sure everything neatly fits into often defeat and it probably won't happen anyway. Give me a faith that says God will do anything if I ask him. Even if he doesn't do it. Give me a faith that says he can move a mountain if I really believed it. Give me that faith. I want that faith. I'm bored of the faith that says those things don't happen anymore. Of course they happen. I just don't believe it. Well, I do believe it, but I was being rhetorical there. There's the power over darkness. Matthew 17, uh, the same book, verses 14 to 21 um, we read about a boy with a demon possessed. When the crowd came, a man approached Jesus, knelt before him, said, Lord, have mercy on me. He has seizures. Uh, sorry, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. What does Jesus say? Well, sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes he does. Now, Jesus says, O unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. When the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He said, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Ponder that. He's showing us through his life, Jesus, that the kingdom of God, that we are the very bricks of, that we have the privilege to be a part of its growth, is not a kingdom of nice and all right, but of power and might. A kingdom that does and does the will of God that breaks down walls and boundaries in people's lives. He showed that over and over and over. In Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus having the power and authority over disease. A centurion comes up to Jesus, I'll just paraphrase, and he comes up and says, heal my servant, please. And Jesus turns to go to his house. And what does the man say? No, 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 no. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. I'm like you. I've got authority. And if I say to a soldier, go there, he'll go there. If I say, go back, he'll go back. Just say the word and he'll be all right. And Jesus says, essentially, wow. There isn't anybody like this guy that I've come across in all of Israel. None of my Jewish friends are the same. This Gentile has got more faith than them because he believes, what? In the power of Jesus Christ over darkness. Do we believe in the power of Jesus over darkness? Or do we accept it or hide from it? We're supposed to fight it as Christians. We're supposed to attack it with spiritual weapons of prayer and faith, not run from it like the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't know what to do with darkness and evil. It just does its best to avoid it. But as Christians, we stand against it. We stand face to face because we stand with Jesus Christ. And we're not frightened of the devil. In fact, we want to destroy his kingdom with the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. 
It's a kingdom of healing and restoration, where the broken become whole. This uh, kingdom is an amazing one. Often people, uh, we get caught on the word why, don't we? Why does God heal that person or not that person? He healed this guy's servant, but why did that one die? Why did this person pass away? Why is that person in a wheelchair? It's not fair. But actually what Jesus told us in the New Testament was that the kingdom was arriving. It was on its way in, breaking into history. And in fact, the message from the Bible is clear, actually, um, that the kingdom of God started small like a seed. And it grew into a, it's going to grow into a mighty tree and everything's going to rest on God's kingdom. This current world, the Bible says, is being uh, taken away, being destroyed, being remade. This world and all it stands for is going. That's why if you build your life here, you're ultimately going to be depressed because this world is passing away in everything it stands for. God is not going to make this world better. He is making the next one arrive. And so the reason not everybody is healed is because they were never going to be everyone that was healed. In fact, in the book of John, when Jesus did miraculous things, they were called signs. Not signs that we can make this world perfect, but signs that there is a perfect world coming. A sign pointing to Jesus that he is the escape route from this one that's passing away to the one that will be there forever and ever and ever. So these acts are to be understood as pointing to a better world or a better country, as Hebrews 1 verse 16 says, signposts to the kingdom of God. And that was the message Jesus told his disciples to give in Luke chapter 10 verse 9. Tell them the kingdom of God has arrived Where else did Jesus show his kingdom power? He showed it over creation in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, as he calms the storm. He's got power over the elements, over the atoms, over the molecules. He's got power over history. I will read this in light of the current global state that we find ourselves in. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 6. Jesus says this about the end of the world. says he left the temple... And was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. He said, do you see these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. AD 70, they destroyed Jerusalem, by the way. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And in verse 7, Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because the increase of wickedness, the love of most, will grow cold. He speaks about the end of history, that the world will turn against itself and it will turn against the followers of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised if that happens. Don't wonder where God is when that happens. Because he said it's going to happen. The wickedness will increase before the return of Jesus Christ. You'll have heard, I'm sure, some of you, that apparently Russia has just passed a law that has made it illegal for anyone outside the Greek Orthodox state church to share their faith. That means churches like ours. Not just share their faith on the public square 
or outside, but even to share their faith one-to-one. It is a law right back from the Soviet days, long gone, we thought. A law that threatens to punish and persecute God's people as his church grows. China, they reckon that um, the persecution for the underground church is again on the rise. In other countries, it happens. It just just goes unreported. Jesus predicted that. He speaks of wars and trouble. But what's really interesting is the one part of that that I didn't read in verse 6, the second half of verse 6, having basically said to his disciples, it's all going to go to pot and you're going to get killed and persecuted. He says in verse 6, after saying you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, see to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you're not alarmed. How on earth could anyone say that unless you have power over everything? If you were just an optimist, you wouldn't say that, would you? You're all going to be handed over and killed, but don't worry about it, it's fine. But if you were the king of kings and the lord of lords and you knew your kingdom was coming and was going to destroy even the most wicked one, you could actually say to everyone who followed you, don't worry, because it will be all right in the end. And isn't that what our world needs to hear today? Isn't that the message that in the midst of all evil humanity, the insidious powers that are seeking to kill and destroy the nations that are rising up, isn't it our message to our world that they're going to be smashed to dust by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that justice is coming? Perhaps just not yet. Isn't that what we should be telling? We shouldn't be telling people that he is coming. Remember the parable of the weeds. He's waiting until the end to take off the sons of the evil one and his own people for everlasting glory. Isn't it what we need to be telling people that his will is going to prevail, that his kingdom is going to come and it's going to have absolutely no end. His kingdom is powerful. and We as a church need to at last begin to stand in the confidence of that power. We're not just a group of people that put on some projects and do nice things. We are actually the solution to some of the things that go on. We stand in the majesty and the power of God. Isn't that what we're supposed to be? To stand next to Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to stand against the darkness. I'm going to be confident in the King of Kings. His kingdom's coming and I belong there not here, and I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to show my friends and my family that we needn't be frightened, we needn't be scared, because God is on his way, and it's good in the end. Justice will be done. His kingdom is unshakable, unfailing, strong, eternal, powerful. It is the kingdom of God. And James chapter 2, verse 5 says this, that it is your inheritance, and it is my inheritance, that it is ours to have forever Colossians 1.13 in fact says that it's our current reality so let me just say this we've got to start living different our world is in trouble trouble is coming it's going to get worse we have got to look and sound and act different we have got to be the ones who are bold We have got to be the ones who are brave. We have got to be the ones who are world changers. There is so much evil in our world, and the devil loves it. Absolutely loves it. He's doing this this morning. Brilliant. They all hate each other. Just what I planned. But we need to bring unity. We need to watch what we say out loud about everything. Watch what we say on social media to our friends down the pub. 
We need to talk of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. We need to be the light in the darkness. We need to preach the gospel. The photocopier man came to the church on Friday. This is connected. Um, For the record, the photocopy is broken if you try and use it. But we're getting a new one next week. And we started chatting just here. And I thought, wow, what an unusual uh, situation. We're talking about photocopies and projectors one minute. And then we're talking about terrorism in the world and the point of everything. And I looked at him and I thought, you're lost. You look lost. You seem lost. You sound lost. And so I told him about Jesus. Didn't become a Christian. I was disappointed, but I was hoping he'd get on his knees and we'd have a really triumphant story for you this morning. But I told him about Jesus Christ. And I'm convicted, actually, more and more, that one of the reasons we don't share the gospel is we don't want to look bad. We don't want people to think we're religious nutters or whatever the phrase is. But I dare you to be a bit crazy to lose a few friends for the kingdom of God because it's coming and God wants everyone in it but they won't get in it unless you tell them and you never know you may well be the person that converts somebody that might, end, might have ended up joining some group in some part of the Middle East that did something terrible every person that is saved stops being a son of darkness becomes a son and daughter of light So, let's pray. I'm going to ask you to stand up, actually. Not yet. Not yet. Sorry. (laughs) Um, We're talking about the power of God's kingdom and standing up for it. And maybe we'll explore a bit more of this next week. But actually, do you want to make a difference in this fragile world? Do you want to be someone that God will use in this fragile world? Do you want to be someone that, when you're at work and it's all falling apart, or when you're with your friends and they're worried and stressed... Actually, you're someone that God uses to bring the power of his kingdom to make a difference. And I'm going to ask you to do something and just stand up where you are. If you want to be one of those people, you just want to make a difference for the kingdom of God, just to stand up. I'm already standing because I do, 100%. (laughs) I always stand up. But just where you are, don't be embarrassed. And let's just pray then a very simple prayer. Because I'm convinced that most of what we need to do is just simply ask. And just say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Use me for your glory. It might be something really small. It might just be that you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit this week to offer to pray with somebody. It might be that for the first time in a long time, God actually says to you, tell them about Jesus. Not God. Jesus. It might be that you feel convicted to do something very practical, like support someone financially or get them some food or something like that. But let's just pray. And if you agree with what I pray, just say amen together. Father God, here we stand. But Lord, we don't stand here as strong people. Lord, we stand here as weak people. We stand here, Lord, not knowing what we could possibly do for you. We stand here, Lord, knowing that often we've done nothing for you. We stand here, Lord, often feeling guilty of what we should be by now. But, Lord, we stand now. We stand in this place and we pray, Lord, that you would use us. Lord, use me. Use us for your kingdom. Lord, you're going to build a kingdom, Lord, but we want to be bricks that you can use. Workmanship that, Lord, you step back and you say, that's a good brick. Father God, we want to go into university or college or our friendships or work or wherever we might be. And we want to be people of power that make a difference. Father, root out anything in us that's sinful. 
Bring us to our knees to repent and say sorry, but Lord, may we be filled with your Holy Spirit as a result, powerfully. Lord, may we not be people that make excuses for why miracles and answers to prayers don't happen, but actually say, they're going to happen because I've got faith like a mustard seed. So Lord, here we are. Use us, we pray. Amen.